This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm your host, Peggy Hodgkins, and today we are talking about the effects of human noise on wildlife. Acoustics and communication is important to wildlife, and bioacoustics is just the study of acoustics relative to the wildlife that we study. Today we are talking with Skip Ambrose, a wildlife biologist specializing in acoustics, specifically the acoustics of birds. After 30 years with the Fish and Wildlife Service, Skip now has his own company that studies the impacts of human-caused noise on wildlife. We begin with him describing why he studies the bioacoustics of birds. In Alaska, I worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service and I studied peregrine falcons, and peregrine falcons eat almost exclusively other birds. A large part of that is pasturing birds, singing birds, songbirds. And the populations of songbirds are real important to peregrine falcons. And so songbirds rely on uh, vocal communication so much that human-caused noise or unusual sounds made by humans can be a negative impact on those birds. So our goal was originally was to study peregrine falcons and their prey species. And to do that, we had to understand survey techniques for their primary prey species, which was birds. So we had to learn about bird surveys and about 80% of bird surveys are strictly acoustics. A lot of times you can't see the birds you're recording. So that, that was how we got started with acoustics was just studying the prey birds of peregrine falcons and, and how you survey them with audio clues. You, you don't see them usually, you just hear them. Yeah. So what are the logistics with this? How do you physically measure and record the birds? Well, originally, and this is 30 or 40 years ago, and it's still used today, but we're making progress with recordings. But originally, you would survey for birds by, for example, walking a 1km transect line, and every 100 meters, you would stop and record the birds that you see or hear, and you hear more than you see. So that would be like 10 stations on a 1km transect, you would do 10 points and listen to birds for five minutes and move on to the next point. Now, recordings and digital recorders and memory and battery life have gotten so much better that we can put out recorders and do a much better job because they can stay there for the whole breeding season, whereas researchers can make three or four visits, but that's it. So the recorders have just such an advantage. They can stay there for a long time. You can come back to the office and listen and re-listen to the recordings. And so the original bird survey techniques were using uh, people walking on a transect, but it's it's progressed more to where we use a lot more of digital recordings now. And so it's just a progression of improved electronics and it's, it's proven way beneficial more than we ever imagined. These uh, re- recording uh, devices stay out in the field for, you said, like, like a whole breeding season. So you get a lot of data in one season. Yes, it, and especially we, we used to, since memory was limited, we used to collect it at MP3, which is a real compressed format, but it doesn't use much space. But in order to use some of the more modern computer programs, we switched to uncompressed WAV files. So yes, we could have a terabyte of data for one site for one season. So it's memory intensive, but it's it's archival. So after we're gone, other people can use them for the same uh, reasons and probably with improved analysis software. So it's worth recording in these good uncompressed file formats, but it is very memory intensive. Like I said, one terabyte for one season. 
And you're, you're recording basically, I guess, every bird in that area during a season. And so in general, what are you listening for with the birds? So I'd say there actually there's two primary focuses of our study. One is just the relative abundance of birds, what birds are there, presence or absence, and if you can, get some sense of abundance. So we, will, we, we don't listen to the 24 hours, we'll sample it. For example, we'll make a 10 cent recording every four minutes, and that gives us a good spread of, we don't miss very many species, we don't miss very many human-caused events, but we'll sample the whole day and we'll record every bird that we hear. And you just, you, it doesn't give you a good uh, exact estimate of the number of birds, but it gives you a year-to-year relative index or the number of songs going up or the number of songs going down. So you have two things, you have the presence or absence of birds, and then you have kind of a relative abundance. And, and that is one big use of the recordings, but maybe a bigger use if you're a manager is like what potential negative impacts are these birds um, experiencing due to man-made noise. And so uh, the recordings also, we have kind of a code system. Every bird species has a code and every human cause sound has a code. And so during these sample recordings, we just write down everything that we hear. And for example, uh, in one 10, 10 second period, we might hear two or three birds and two or three human caused sounds like uh, a distant aircraft or a vehicle where the purpose of the recordings are really twofold. One is to determine the abundance of bird species that we're studying, which is all of them in the case of peregrines, they, all, they eat all birds. And the other one is to see what potential impacts there might be from human cause sounds and what are those human cause sounds. So the recordings tell us two things. And, and when you start using them for multi-years, you, you get to see these trends of airplane noise going up, airplane noise going down, and uh, yellow warbles going up, yellow warbles going down. So there's really two primary reasons for the recordings. And I know you've done a whole lot of work in Alaska and Wyoming. And I know you've also done some studies here on the Colorado Plateau, including, you know, national parks. I know you've done a study in the Grand Canyon, arches, canyonlands, things like that, and also Glen Canyon, Rainbow Bridge area. I just wanted to start with, say, say the Grand Canyon. Can you describe what, what you were actually studying when you did the bioacoustics there? One thing that happened in the year 2000 Congress passed an act called the, the Air Tour Act Management Act, which that act stated that the National Park Service and the Federal Aviation Administration, FAA, were to work together and try to put, a, put plans for each park where had, which had air tours. And the Grand Canyon was kind of a poster child of what went wrong with air tours. There were some collisions, there were some deaths, and there was basically noise from air tours everywhere. In 2000, when they passed this act, the Park Service started a program where they wanted to go measure noise in these parks and try to get as good a background information as they can prior to air tours getting to be very numerous. So our original goals in all these parks was to try to go measure sound in places without air tours, just so we knew what the background sound level before air tours might get started. So starting in the Grand Canyon, but all, all the other parks that you mentioned and all across the U.S., any park that has an air tour, we tried to measure sound levels in the backcountry to kind of establish what background sound levels were. And then we could kind of predict or model what impacts air tours would have on the acoustic environment of each park. 
And uh, did you use your, I mean, was your data helpful in influencing the, the policies of the parks? Well, to tell you the truth, it's been so difficult to work out these plans. Two parks have air tour plans, I think Zion and maybe Rainbow Bridge. But for the most part, the, the, the agencies, FAA and the NPS, have totally different missions. The NPS is to protect park resources and sound, natural soundscapes is one of those resources. And the FAA's mission is to provide for aviation. So it's been very difficult trying to um, assess and manage air tour noise over national parks. And it's in part just because the missions of the agencies are so totally different. Since 2005, you've had your own consulting firm, Western Bioacoustics Incorporated. What type of work have you been doing uh, with that and for whom? It was um, kind of an odd sequence of events in that we had been measuring sound in these parks, which is very quiet. And that was, a, at the time, was kind of an uncommon thing because, like I said, most acoustical people are contracted to measure noise in noisy places, highways or railroads or airports. And so it was a whole different um, science of trying to measure noise in very quiet places before development came. So when we retired, we didn't really expect to do this, but we've got calls from places like Wyoming Game and Fish or Utah Division of Natural Resources, Nevada Division of Wildlife, and federal agencies like the Forest Service and Bureau of Land Management asking us to measure sound levels in places before a gas field was, for example, was going to be put in. And so we would go measure and say sagebrush habitats and there would be no development and we would get levels down to zero. So we were kind of in a unique position at the time because we had experience with measuring very, very low levels. And so we got a few contracts with these state and federal agencies and we were measuring primarily in sagebrush for greater sage grouse and we were measuring very low levels. And so we could, we could at least tell the agencies Prior to development, here's what the sound level is. And they, could, they could be very low. The background sound levels could be 10 or 15 decibels. And that's very quiet. I mean, people just didn't realize how quiet things were. They just had never had the need to measure in places like that. But once you do, you realize that it can be very, very quiet prior to human development. And then I, in the case of the Wyoming study, we've been measuring there for about 10 years and we have 20 years of count data where the people from BLM and Wyoming Game and Fish would go count at several leks in Wyoming. So we had over 20 leks with over 20 years of sound level data. And so we were able to really make a good correlation between the background sound level before gas field and then correlate that with trends of the grouse when the gas fields came in. And we found that greater sage grouse were impacted at pretty low levels, like at 26 decibels, when the gas field sound levels exceeded 26 dBA, uh, grouse populations tended to go down. And so this has been kind of an unusual study. We had long-term count data, we had long-term sound level data, and that's really what it takes to get a clearer picture. And we, we don't have that for very many species at all. So the, the grouse are just an example of, we went out and measured sound levels in sagebrush before development, and then we measured it post-development, and we could make these correlations of trends. And so uh, after I retired from the Park Service, we just put in a few bids on these contracts, and 
we're able to get get these contracts because we have this experience. Now more people are getting experience in using this type of equipment, but for a while we were the only ones that were not the only ones, but we had done it a lot, so we got these contracts. And you were saying, you know, with the sage grouse in Wyoming, that that was one example of where you had an adequate amount of data. What I mean, what was your, your the actual finding? What so far? What can you say about the effects on the sage grouse? We we've found a, a very strong correlation between sound levels and trends. When sound levels, the the, the man-made sound levels get above twenty-six or so dBA, grouse populations tend to decline. And I have to qualify that in that uh, there are many things that affect grouse, and it's hard, often hard, to separate. What is the causal effect? For example, in the gas field, we have loss of habitat. When they build a road or an oil pad, a drilling pad, we lose habitat. When they drill for well, we have activity. We have vehicles on the roads. We have light pollution at night. We have buildings and power lines where raptors can perch. And so there are many things that are possible negative impacts to grouse. The one thing about sound is we can stimulate the sound by playback. We broadcast the sounds of, that were interest, and we can measure the, the behavior of birds. And they have found that in the absence of all of the variables, birds have altered their behavior and numbers have gone down just on sound. So I mentioned the problem studying, uh, you know, what might cause a decline in grouse and trying to single out any specific source is difficult, but at least sounds us, gives us that opportunity to to do it alone, and, we, and we've shown that. We know that other things that impact grouse, like loss of habitat and uh, cheatgrass is coming in, and cheatgrass is fire tolerant and sagebrush is not, so there's other things that are impacting grouse, but we know that sound is one of the primary factors that uh, negatively impact greater sage grouse. We don't know that much about other species, but with this sage grouse 20-year study, we have a good idea of those impacts. Are there any other projects on the go or um, in the works right now? The greater sage grouse was a species that was once considered for listing during the Obama administration because it was declining and everyone knew that they were in trouble, but uh, a lot of interest did not want this bird to be on the endangered species list. And so the federal government, the state governments, the state fishing game agencies and the federal land management agencies came together and made a plan, the greater sage grouse plan. This is, I'm guessing about 10 years ago, I don't even know exactly, but it was a plan that basically their, their effort was, let's conserve and save sage grouse so we can prevent the need for listing, which the Endangered Species Act um, has this provision and it's used a good bit and it's a good idea. If you can preclude the need for listing and, and the species does not decline further, it's great. And so, what it's getting at within the past 10 years, there's been a big interest in greater sage grouse trying to meet these goals of this conservation plan that precludes the need for listing. And so there's been many agencies that have been measuring sound levels in sagebrush prior to development. And so, I mean, that's a positive thing in that they're trying to stay ahead of the curve and learn what they can about the impacts of human-caused sounds on sage grouse. There are other studies going on, doing songbird counts around gas fields and, and, and so forth, and what species benefit, what species are negatively impacted. So grouse has just been one of the major species because of this big effort to um, preclude the need for listing. 
in addition to staying ahead of the curve with the, the sage grouse, has any attempt been made to cap or to maybe reduce sound levels? There have been uh, specific efforts to reduce the sound at a given location, like some of the drill rigs tried, companies tried to just pile up the shipping container boxes, connex boxes, maybe four or five or six levels high. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they look like a cargo ship, but they'll pile up these shipping containers around a drilling rig on the side of the lek and just trying to reduce the sound levels that get to the lek from the, um, the drill rig. Um, that has not proved very effective because sound does refract and reflect. And so if you're more than a half mile away from the barrier, sound levels tend to be about the same. So there's been efforts made. Some have been successful, most have not. But one of the benefits recently anyway has been the ability for the directional drilling. And so I've seen oil pads, oil fields in Wyoming where there's one well per pad and there might be over a hundred pads per acre. And one of the benefits of directional drilling now has been that one, one pad can have like 40 different wells. They're all directional. They go out in different directions from the pad. But what that has done is re- reduced the impacts of the need for roads, the need for well pads and the sound level in general. The sound level is, well, the man-made sounds are just restricted to that one pad. So rather than 40 pads, you have one pad. And that has helped a lot. Skip, as a resident yourself of Moab, you you must understand the issues of human-caused noise that we face here, not only in the parks, but uh, right here in town. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on the potential harm to wildlife um, and to humans. Places, even in remote places, the national parks are often more noisier than you think. And it's becoming more available now that parks are noisy and human caused sounds can have negative impacts on people and wildlife. And so it's been an educational process as much as anything that I tell people when you go out, listen and think about what you hear. You or me can turn up the volume or talk louder, but Many wildlife species don't have that option. And some of the noises that we just take for granted can be really bad for wildlife. And I try to relate it to like locally here in the Moab area, the recent rules that allow off-road vehicles on highways has just made Moab a way noisier place. And it's, I mean, people complain mostly because of their self-interest, which is not bad, but we kind of miss the fact that this impacts other things as well, birds and bird calls and wildlife that, that rely on hearing for survival. So a lot of these things like these off-road vehicles can be made quieter, but people tend to do the opposite. They make them louder. And so I just ask people, just consider your own personal impact and don't modify your muffler and don't use outrageous noise-making devices. Give some consideration to other, other animals that rely on sound. That's the one message I want to leave people that we, we can be quiet. We don't have to be noisy. Well, Skip, thanks so much for talking with Science Moab about the world of bioacoustics. Oh, glad, glad to share it with you. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. 
Science Moab Media is by Sophia Fisher. Newsletter by Rhonda Cook. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.